Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. In 2005, uh, quarterback Tom Brady was interviewed by 60 Minutes. And in it, in this interview, he was a bit more honest than we often see professional athletes and celebrities being. Here's what he said in this interview he gave with Steve Croft. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it's all about. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. He says, but me? I think there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all that there is. Multiple Super Bowl wins, multiple NFL MVP awards, a decent looking guy, (laughs) married to a supermodel, was married to a supermodel. Maybe he just wanted to be a Denver Bronco, I don't know. but still searching, still, still longing. It achieves the, the pinnacle of what we would say is success. And he gets to the top of that mountain and goes, not all it's cracked up to be. There, there's gotta be more than this. That, that searching, that longing, that, that desire for fulfillment is, is so intricately connected to what it means to be human. It's part of the journey that we are all on. It's it's the reason that so many movies and books and songs and poems are written about this topic of searching, searching for more. One of my favorite bands of all time wrote one of my favorite songs of all time. The band is U2. The song is I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And in it, they sang. You can just imagine Bono's quintessential voice singing, I've climbed the highest mountains. I've run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. I've run, I've crawled, I've scaled these city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Come on, if you know it, sing it. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yeah. I still, you guys sound really good, by the way. (laughs) Haven't found what I'm looking for. In his recently released autobiography, Bono told us that the song is an echo of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's quest for meaning. He wrote it, sort of patterned the song after John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress, that at one point was the second most popular book in the world, only to, second to the Bible, right? And I think there's something about being human that causes us to rise up and go, yeah, I'm I'm looking too. I'm searching too. That, that fulfillment, that, that meaning, that, that purpose. Like I was, I was created for that. We hear a song like this and, and I think some of us would just raise our hand and we would say, me too. So we listen to Brady and we read Bunyan and we hear Bono and all those start with B, praise be to God. And here's what we recognize that to be human is to be searching. To be human is to be 
searching. The most central question all of us are asking for and chasing after an answer for is, what does it look like to live fulfilled? Well, what does it look like to experience the quote unquote good life? And here's fundamental to that question we have to answer. Is that good life found in God or is it found outside of him? Is it found in relationship with God or is it found rejecting God and going about it our own way? And before you answer that, I know you're in church this morning, but let's just pause for a moment and say that the life apart from God that we may call the the far off country, that life has a certain sort of pull towards it, doesn't it? There's a certain sort of allurement that, that that life apart from God has on us, a draw. And maybe we might think along with the sage wisdom in a moment of, of just realization, we might go, yeah, the grass is always greener on the, what? Other side, yeah. That, 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 that life outside of God is somehow mm, maybe a little bit more appealing at times. But the grass is always greener on the other side. But once you get on the other side, I think oftentimes you find out that grass is turf. Amen? And see, while we continue to see the standard of living in the West rise, can we all agree that our quality of life isn't rising with it? There's still this haunting question. How do I find what, on a more fundamental level, how do I find what I'm looking for? So glad you asked that question. Would you open your Bible? Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we are in a series that we're calling This Is Our Story. And we're exploring over the course of six weeks, three stories that Jesus told. He calls them parables. The last one we're spending the most time on is the parable of the prodigal, what? Son. Parable of the prodigal son. And we talked about it a little bit last week, and we're going to dive into more depth this week. And, And we said last week, every story has tension. Every good story has tension. And in so many ways, I think we'd want to fast forward through the part of the human story about the the tension or what we might call within the church sin. But Jesus doesn't let us do that. He spends some time laying the groundwork and inviting us to, to reconsider what it means to be human and in relationship with God and in relationship with others. So we're going to slow down and we're going to look sin in the eye as we did last week. Last week, we talked about the nature of sin This week, we're going to talk about the process and the results of sin, because we need to understand the tension in our story as human beings if we're ever going to understand the glory of God's grace and mercy. So listen to the way that Jesus began this parable. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property or or life between them. Remember, we talked about the nature of sin last week. And Jesus points out that sin at its core is a breach of relationship before it's a break in law. It's us saying to God, God, I don't want to be in your presence. And I'd rather you be dead than have rule and reign over me. So before the younger son ever breaks any commandments God has given him, he breaks relationship with God. And it springs forth from a heart of selfishness. It springs forth from a desire for him to be autonomous, to go his own way, chart his own course, do his own thing. And it springs forth from this deep-seated distrust in the heart of his father. 
The younger son has to believe on some level, God, you're holding out on me. The good life that I'm searching for is found somewhere outside of your walls, not within it. Listen to the way Jesus continued. He said, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. Everybody say far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Now, we're going to dive into the details of this portion of the story because it's going to give us a picture of the process and the results of sin. But let me just make a few general observations for us as we begin. Number one, the younger son gathers all that he has. That means he takes the portion of his property that the father had given to him and he cashes it out. It means that everybody else who was living on that property, receiving from that property, gaining from that property is poorer because of it. There would have been visceral hatred for somebody in a village who did something like this. Everybody else is like, good riddance, goodbye. But the second thing that I want you to see is that he takes a journey into a far off country. We're not told exactly where, but I think we can uh, sort of deduce a few things about the place that he goes. It's a place where there's not a lot of people who fear God. Why? He finds himself feeding what? Pigs, right. And Jewish people would have never had pigs. They would have never been around pigs. They had no need for pigs back in his day. And I think what we see is the younger son who has this heart that says, God, I don't want to be in relationship with you. And eventually that posture leads him outside of the presence of his father. He's searching for fulfillment outside of the God that he was designed to receive fulfillment from. He's taken God's stuff. He's taken his father's stuff. And he said, I'll use your stuff. Thank you very much to chart for myself, the kind of life that I think will bring me the most happiness, the most fulfillment, the most pleasure. Let me just hit pause and go, gosh, don't you wish the Bible were still applicable today? (laughs) Does Does this resonate with our journey as well? And remember, this story, I would argue, is an archetype of the human journey. It's Genesis chapters 1 through 3 retold, and then uh, Genesis 4 through Revelation 22 retold in so many ways. And so the younger son is, is now east of Eden, as it were. He's got the stuff the father created, but he doesn't have the father And he's left to to search, to to long, to make meaning out of life apart from the God he was designed to find meaning in. And what we see almost immediately is that fulfillment is forfeited when God is rejected. Fulfillment is forfeited when God is rejected. And so let me say it as clearly as I can for us this morning. Any search for true meaning, true fulfillment, and ultimate good outside of relationship with God is ultimately futile. It will eventually be shown for what it is, which according to Solomon is a chasing after the wind or vanity upon vanities. And I know that's hard to hear. And I know you're thinking to yourself, no, no, Ryan, you have no idea the way that I'm gonna go for it, the way that I'm gonna do it, the way that I'm gonna take my life that God's given me and I'm gonna go my own way, chart my own course and I'm gonna be the one person who does find fulfillment apart from the God that I've rejected. And I just wanna say, God bless you. Good luck with that. 
As a pastor, my job isn't to make you comfortable. It's not to make you happy. It's to tell you the truth. And eventually, I just want to, I just want to beg and plead with you, if that's where you're at this morning, to lean in just a little bit because I think God has a word for you. And I believe that one day you will wake up and the bottom will have fallen out of your quest for joy. And so maybe, just maybe, today's a day where God would get our attention and speak to our hearts in a way where we would maybe come to terms with the fact that, gosh, fulfillment really is forfeited when God is rejected. The story that Jesus tells wouldn't have been all that unfamiliar for people back in Jesus's day. See, in, um, in Israel, many people lived on what might have been called um, an insula, which was a grouping of houses based around a patriarch or a, a wealthy father's home. When a younger son would get married, he would build a home right attached to his father's home. And when it was done, his home was done, his wife would eventually come and would dwell with him in his father's land. How many of you are really glad we don't do that anymore? How many of you understood why the younger son left? Okay, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Uh, when I was in Israel a few weeks ago, I had the chance to go to Chorazim, which is um, uh, the ruins of a place that was set up just like this, a common courtyard, patriarch's house, and then younger siblings' houses, and then servants' houses based all around it. And so for a younger son or a son to leave the family would be to leave not only the father's presence, but all the good that the father had spent decades accumulating. To go to a far off country wouldn't have been all that unthinkable either. See, um, in Jesus's day, the Roman empire was alive and well, and they were building Roman colonies all over Israel. Here's one that's called Bet Sheon. And in Bet Sheon, you could go, think of going as a, as a Jewish boy who's grown up in this insula, connected to your father, connected to your brothers and sisters, connected to the land, going to a place like Bet Sheon and going to a 7,000 person auditorium to see a Roman play. Can you imagine the draw? Can you imagine the pull? I mean, think of walking down Main Street in Bet Sheon that had shopping places. You're going, what? Shopping? Wow. Some of you are going, praise be to God. You know? um, think of a, of a temple that would have been there that had temple prostitutes working at it where you could go find all the pleasure you wanted. Uh, think about the draw of modernity. <laughs> think about the draw of, of compromise. I know you've, you've grown up in this way. I know that you've learned these stories, but, but really, oh man, you want to find life? <laughs> Here's where it's found. And I think that the story Jesus tells is so familiar to us because we sense that draw, don't we? It may not be to a Roman colony, but that draw of compromise, that draw of maybe just maybe there's better life outside of relationship with a father, maybe just maybe I should start to spread my wings a little bit so I can really find what I'm looking for. We get that story, don't, you, don't we? See, this is our story. And I want to point out for us today the way and the process of sin and what it results in. And there's three things that I want you to see about life in the far country. Here's the first one. Verse 13 reads like this. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into the far country. And there he, what? Squandered his property in reckless 
living. He squandered his property. That word squandered is the same word that a farmer might use while he's spreading seed. He's just tossing it, tossing it onto the ground and hoping that it finds good soil. Uh, the, The picture is of a younger son who's sort of carelessly throwing his money around with the illusion, it'll never run out. I'm just gonna get to keep living like this and nothing is going to stop me. Later on, we'll see in verse 30, if you wanna just look down there with me, the older brother's accusation about the way that he spent his money. He said, but when this son of yours came back, he devoured your property with prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf to welcome him home. So what did he do with his money? Presumably, he spent it on some of those temple prostitutes that we saw were alive and well in Bet-Shean. And what is the word that's used to describe the process of sin? It's the word squandering. I'd invite you to write that down. Squandering. However, please note that it's not just wasting. It's wasting with a perceived purpose and expected result. Because when a farmer goes out and sows seed, he's expecting that those seeds will find soil put down root and eventually bear what? Some sort of fruit. They'll bear some sort of harvest. And I'd like to suggest to you that the younger son is doing the exact same thing. He's throwing his money, he's throwing his wealth, he's throwing his body. And what he's expecting is that what I'll get back in return is fulfillment. What I'll get back in return is meaning. What I will get back in return is everything that I'm searching for in life. And it's a lie. Uh, Sociologists in our day and time have identified this lie as they call it the hedonic treadmill. And here's the way that that's unpacked. The hedonic treadmill means that if you want that new car, you often expect the new car is going to bring you some sense of fulfillment, but eventually it's another car. Can I get an amen? That you expect the new house will give you some sort of increased happiness and it gives you a boost, but eventually you're back on that hedonic treadmill running because eventually it's just a house. The new job, eventually it's just a job. The new iPhone 14, eventually Apple comes out with a 15. Come on, (laughs) right? They call it the hedonic treadmill. And I think the younger son starts to experience this truth. We might echo the truth and the Rolling Stones anthem, I can't get no satisfaction. Right? Like I try, I squander and I squander and I squander, but I can't get no satisfaction. The happiness needle in our life doesn't really move. Even if we acquire and get more stuff, can I get an amen? Um, James, the brother of Jesus, teaches didactically what Jesus teaches us in his story and listen to the way he put it. He said, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is, say it with me, church, lured and enticed by his own desire. When I see that word lured, um, I have an image that comes to my mind. My guess is you do too. What's the image that comes to your mind? Fishing, right? Yeah, where you put a, a little lure on the end of a hook And you throw that lure into a river or into the ocean or into a lake, right? 
and you start to reel it in slowly and your hope is what? A fish will, yeah, bite that lure. And you're trying to trick the fish, aren't you? And the thinking that there's, there's some food there. There's some good there. There's some life there. And eventually that fish bites that lure. And what they find is not life, but like dinner, right? They are dinner. That's what they find. And James is saying that sin works the same way, that it's held out in front of us and it looks good and it looks enticing and it looks like it'll satisfy and it looks like it'll bring life. But when we bite down on it, what happens to us is death, not life. That's the picture that's being painted. See, sin always holds out this lie, you guys. It always holds out this lie. If you had just a little bit more, then you'd be okay. Just a little bit more sex, just a little bit more money, just a little bit bigger, just a little bit brighter, then you would be happy. And it's a lie. It's a lure. It's one of the reasons I love the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon writes to us from the other side of having everything. And he goes, listen, it's vanity upon vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. And I think it's a great book for us to read through and wrestle with because we could often buy this lie. If I had just a little bit more, then I'd be happy. And Solomon goes, I had that more and it didn't work. Like you've planted gardens. Solomon says, I've planted forests. You've built a house great work. I've built palaces. I've built a temple. I've gotten on the other side. I've stood on the top of the mountain and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The scriptures say, friends, that you were created with eternity in your heart because you were designed for relationship with God. That means the only thing that can ultimately fulfill you is relationship with an eternal and unconditionally loving God. So our hearts are sort of like I'm trying to, to fill a black hole with dirt. The more we put into it, it doesn't fill up. We go, okay, just a little bit more money and it doesn't satisfy. Just a little bit more love, it doesn't satisfy. Just a little bit more sex, it doesn't satisfy. Just a little bit bigger, just a little bit brighter and, and it leaves us wanting because the thing that was designed to be on our heart, on the throne of our heart is an eternal God who loves us unconditionally and everything else falls woefully short. It's scattering in hopes that it will bring us some sort of fulfillment and happiness that it was never designed to bring. See, God's gifts get twisted when we worship the creation rather than the creator. But then when we twist those things, worshiping them instead of the creator, they start to twist us. It's why the novelist David Foster Wallace would say, pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. It's true. You worship money, you'll never have enough. Worship beauty or sexuality, you'll never be pretty enough. Worship power, your own weakness and shortcoming will eat you alive. Worship intellect, you'll always feel stupider than you should be. You worship anything other than God, and it will eat you up. Squandering, just hoping it'll find root and bear fruit. And it never does. And it never does. And eventually we squander our lives into oblivion. Um, In uh, one of my sessions with my therapist, my therapist looked at me and said back to me, "Um, Ryan, what are you hoping to get out of that? What are you hoping to get out of that? It's a great question. I'd love to ask the younger brother, what are you hoping to get out of that? The scattering of 
your wealth? What are you, what are you hoping to receive? And I, I'd love to ask you the same thing. Like over, over, if we were over a cup of coffee, what, what are you hoping to get out of that? That thing that you're chasing after. Look at the way that the story continued. It says, and when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. It's really interesting because I think it's um, a mistake we could make is to blame the famine. But Jesus makes it really clear. He'd already spent everything. He's already running on empty. And the famine maybe speeds up, but it doesn't create. More than that, it reveals the deficit of the life that's lived apart from relationship with the good father. And what does this younger son start to experience? As he squanders everything away, he starts to experience this scarcity. Scarcity, by the way, that he never experienced when he lived on his father's land. You know, the famine could be something like death or sickness or diagnoses from the doctor or depression or bankruptcy or divorce or you fill in the blank. But the famine just really starts to reveal the foundation of where we have built our life. That's what it does. The prophet Jeremiah would look at the people of Israel and he would give this sort of scathing indictment about the way that they had left the provision of their good father and tried to do things on their own. He said this, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two, how many? Two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two things they did. Number one, they turned away from God, right? God, uh, Father, thank you for creating me, but I wish you were dead. I'll take my stuff. Thank you very much. They forsook God. Number two, they hewed out, they dug cisterns to try to store water, but they were cracked and they didn't deliver on what they promised. And eventually those cisterns were what? Empty. This is the same story told over and over and over again. You reject God and you forfeit the fulfillment that he designed you to receive from him. And eventually you're in this posture of scarcity. And here's what I want to say to you today. If that's, if that's you today, if you're in a position of scarcity where you're going, gosh, we've, we've tried it everything in order to make life meaningful. Like we've done every travel ball team out there. I am climbing the corporate ladder. I feel like we should be in the position where we are experiencing abundance and all we can say is I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I wanna say you're in the right place. May that be a dashboard light on your car or your life's sort of check engine light this morning to say you're looking for sufficiency in all the wrong places. Scarcity, friends, is a signpost that we're looking for sufficiency in the wrong places. Because eventually that scattering and that trying to fill that void is gonna leave us empty. We're gonna spend it all and be left with nothing. Here's the final turn. And if you're going, gosh, Ryan, I'm really glad I came today. Um, <laughs> Just wait till the end. 
then you'll be really glad. Verse 15. So he went and he did what? Hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing, longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but nobody gave him anything. Hired himself out. It's the idea in the original Greek of gluing himself to somebody. It's the same picture that when a husband and wife come together, they come together like the same picture. Um, When you get dust on your shoes, it would be the same idea of clinging to something or to someone. Hired himself out. We have a word for that. He moves from squandering to scarcity to slavery. And what started out as as a quest for freedom turns into the shackles of, of slavery. It's the very thing that Jesus told the Pharisees who were unbelievers. He he says back to them, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the Pharisees' reaction back to him is, we haven't been a slave to anyone ever. What are you talking about? Evidently, they haven't read the book of Exodus lately, number one. But I think... Our response to Jesus saying anyone who's a slave to sin might be similar. Instead of saying we are the offspring of Abraham, we might say, well, we are Americans. This is the land of the home of the brave, right? Yeah, but we're we're not slaves to anyone. And yet, and yet Jesus would say, no, no, no. If you choose the pathway of sin, eventually it's going to get its tentacles in you. It's going to wrap itself around you. And eventually you are going to be in the place where you can do nothing other than respond to the urges that are being created. My mind goes to Chronicles of Narnia and um, Edmund's desire for what? Turkish delight, And he gets a little bit from the white witch and then he wants more and more and more. And eventually he starts to sell out his family and friends in order to get just a little bit more. He's caught in this pattern and he's saddled with this desire that he's unable to satisfy and he's unable to deny. That's slavery to sin. Desires that we cannot satisfy and we cannot deny. And so we would echo what the apostle Paul would say in moment of honesty, I do what I do not want to do. Anybody ever been there? Just me? Yeah. I do what I do not want to do, or I have the desire to do what's right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. I mean, it's the refrain of alcoholics, people addicted to pornography, those who overeat, those who overshop alike. I know the way I want to go, but I can't do it. Why? Because squandering eventually led to scarcity, and then eventually, led to slavery. And in the end, in the end, the paradise that we were longing for, this search to find meaning and to find fulfillment turns out to be a mirage in the desert. We got there and it did not deliver on what it had promised. Now, uh, let's make a few observations about the father in this part of the story. Right. Yeah, we're, we're done, right? We, we don't have any. There's, there's nothing to observe at this point. 
And I think a lot of people, when they think about God, they imagine God as the angry father who's wronged by his son. And he like runs after him and goes, you're going to pay. You want to treat me like that? I'll show you who's big man on campus. I'm coming after you. Or you've robbed me of glory. You've shamed me in front of everybody. How dare you? How dare you? And certainly we see pictures of God responding to sin in scripture and he's angry and it's a just anger and it's an anger to make wrong right. Yes and amen to that. But in this story, I'm struck by the fact that the father doesn't chase down his son saying, you're going to have to pay. He doesn't fly off the handle angry at the way he's been wronged or robbed of glory. The father in this story is heartbroken. The father in this story is longing for his son to come home. The father in this story is longing for restoration. The father in this story inflicts no punishment on the son because of his sin. Sin carries its own punishment in this story and it leads the son to a place of scarcity and slavery and it breaks the father's heart. It breaks his father's heart. The only thing we see is the father do up to this point is divide his life and continue to love. Remember, sin causes us to be in a place where we cannot experience God's love, but it does not stop God from loving. And so here's this picture that I want to paint. I want to, I want to sort of walk back through the effects of sin and point out that in relationship with God, all of those effects are effectively reversed. See, because the truth of the matter is, friends, that when we're in the Father's presence, even now, when we're in the Father's presence, we experience a glorious reversal. Somebody say, praise be to God. Where instead of squandering, we get to enjoy the things that God has created. See, because when God is in his rightful place as creator, we can experience the good things he's created as gifts from him rather than the gift themselves, rather than worshiping the gifts, we worship the giver. Does that make sense? So we can receive everything under God instead of making it a God, little G God, we can worship our true heavenly father and enjoy the things he's given us, which is why he gave them to us according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. And we can respond with gratitude for the good gifts that he's given us rather than being obsessed with an insatiable desire for more. So you guys make no mistake about it. God has, has designed you to be somebody who's seeking after pleasure, seeking after joy. But I love the way that St. Augustine put it when he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. That desire or longing for fulfillment and joy is designed to point us back to our gracious heavenly father. And as the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in your home, in relationship with you, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Life, joy, pleasure, all in his hands. Have you found what you're looking for? Have you found what you're looking for? Secondly, in relationship with God, we move from, from scarcity to abundance. See, here's the, the sort of paradoxical twist of all of this. Apart from God, we will never have enough. But in relationship with God, we will never lack anything. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's what David the psalmist would say. What Paul would write from jail is not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And if you read back through Philippians, what you'll find is that Paul's contentment is found in one thing. And it's not his circumstances, and it's not how much pleasure he experiences, and it's not how good he's doing in his eyes. His contentment is based solely on Jesus. That's it. Period. End of story. And finally, finally, when we make our home in his love, when we say back to God, God, we long for your presence, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. We thirst for you. We move from slavery to freedom. The son leaves searching for freedom, but he actually leaves the source of the very freedom he longs for. Remember, in our day and time, we've redefined freedom to mean I have the ability to do whatever I want. But true freedom is the ability to make choices that will lead us to the life that God designed us to live. It's the reason that Jesus would look at his disciples and he would say to them, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. And when you do that, you will know the truth and the truth will, what? Set you free. What if Jesus wants your freedom way more than you do? And what if finding freedom, here's the, here's the paradox, here's the twist. What if finding freedom is actually a posture of surrender? God, you can have my life. Take up my cross, I'll follow you, be obedient to you. All my desires I'm submitting to you. My dreams I'm putting at your feet. My hopes, the things that I long for. God, I'm surrendering it all to you. Or as Paul, the apostle Paul would write, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, this is the pathway to freedom. This is the pathway to fulfillment. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will do it. You'll get to the tallest mountain and you'll go, is this all that there is? And my answer back to you on top of that mountain would be, no, it's not. You were created for more. You were designed for more. And so what if, what if finding the fulfillment that we really long for, what if we don't have to run through the fields or climb the highest walls or scale the city walls or or run or crawl or any of those things? What if in order to find what we're really looking for, what we only have to do is bow? Bow before our heavenly father. Admit our brokenness, admit our sin admit our offense against him, bow and come home. What if that's the place where we move to abundance, to freedom, to enjoying the things God's given us rather than worshiping them? Yeah, I don't think you need to scale the city walls. I just think you need to bow at the throne of the almighty. The fulfillment that we are searching for is found definitively and ultimately in the house of our Father. You may not know it, friend, but that's what you're looking for today because that's what you were designed for. And so 
If you're experiencing squandering, if you're experiencing scarcity, if you're experiencing slavery, may that be an invitation for you to recognize, gosh, I'm looking for fulfillment in life apart from my father. And and today is a great day to run home. I'm gonna give you just a few moments to spend with you and God before we go to the table, the communion table together. The scriptures call us to search ourselves before we go to this table, not to, not to run there haphazardly, but to really search what's going on in our heart. And so I'd just invite you, would you hold those three words before God, squandering, scarcity, slavery? Would you hold those words before God and just ask if there's any way that those postures of a heart have crept their way into you? And then I'd invite you to remember that he's a good father and his arms are wide open. And as we'll see next week, he's even running towards you. You bring that before the Lord now. Lord, we we thank you for being like the father in this story. And we would all say back to you, forgive us for being like the sons in this story. As we climb inside this parable and we explore it and it explores us, we see that, gosh, even though your light shines really bright, there's still some darkness that we hold on to, some lies that get their way into us that we believe about things that'll bring us fulfillment and joy and happiness in life that apart from you are chasing after the wind. And so we would just humbly come back before you today and say thank you for being the kind of God who divides his life for us, welcomes us home, speaks truth, and is at work on our behalf even right now. So we come before your table with humility and gratitude, overwhelmed by your grace that's greater than all of our sin. Where grace, where sin ran deep, your grace is more. And we are so thankful for that. It's the very thing that allows us to look at ourselves honestly and to find freedom by the power of your spirit. So we say thank you. Would you meet us in a unique way as we come to your table, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would still need um, communion elements, would you just raise your hand and our um, ushers will bring some down. There's some right here. I love that we get to celebrate communion as we sort of camp out in this story because Jesus would say that any who we profess faith in him, are invited to, to the table. And so what does that mean? It means that we find our life in him. It means that we say back to him, I, I long for your presence. And, and it means that 
when we say to him, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And we go our own way in selfishness and autonomy and trying to chart our own course. And we start to see things in our life like scarcity and squandering and slavery. It means that we say back to him, forgive me, forgive me. I've, I've, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Forgive me. And if you would say that to him today, you are a child of God. He would invite you, run back to me. Know my love, know my goodness, know my presence in your life. Run back to me because my arms are open to you. And if that's who you are this morning, the table is open to you because the table is a table in the Father's house. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he looked at his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. He blessed it. He gave thanks. And he said, this cup is the new covenant, which is made in my blood. It's the covenant of the forgiveness of sins. It means that regardless of how far you go, how much you squander, how much scarcity you experience, how much slavery you live in, regardless of how far you go away from the Father, His grace is still sufficient for you to always come home. Amen? This is the new covenant, Jesus said, which is made in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. We do. We celebrate you today, Jesus. We love you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.